0: Welcome to NSCA's Coaching Podcast, episode 62. So when I was coaching and looking at it, I wanted to try to be empowering, transformational. I wanted to be a great coach, uh, inspiring. I wanted, you know, all these great things to enhance performance, you know, just be phenomenal. And you start wondering and going, wait, wait a minute, though, how come, how come we're having conflict? How come the athletes are yelling back? Or how come they're not doing what they're told, so to speak? Or how come they are doing what they're told, unquestionably? and they're not asking questions. How come this guy's back hurts and he's not telling me? This is the NSCA's coaching podcast where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning and then there's everything else.
1: Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Scott Caulfield. Today from Washington, DC, NSCA National Conference 2019. Excited to have my guest here, Dr. Brian Garrity, Program Director at the University of Denver the sport coaching master's program as well as a number of other things dr. G welcome to the show
0: thanks for having me Scott it's good to be here
1: finally got our schedules uh, coordinated good. to make this happen excited I intend on breaking the podcast record with this one too <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we I have want, all,
0: all of our students just watch it it'll yeah,
1: be yeah we're gonna you can Im- embed it into all the curriculum in every class and then you're guaranteed to get more hits that way
0: this this link wasn't supposed to take me to the podcast I can't <laughs> find the document
1: yeah I don't know why all these links go to the podcast It's so weird. (laughs) Um, No, but again, being a um, you know Denver alumni now and one of the first people that went through the program was pretty exciting. But uh, even beyond that, I think the cool thing too, you know, and I'll let you talk a little bit about kind of your background. But you know, the cool thing that I see um, is looking at you. You've been a strength coach. You know, worked in college, worked in pro baseball, and then kind of went down this academic path and to the point where you s- created basically a program that you wanted to create at a university and and you know run that program and then grow it and now have to get more students and you know you guys have already added certificate et cetera, et cetera. but so yeah I'll let you kind of kind of rewind a little and maybe tell us about how you even got into strength conditioning in the first place
0: yeah so I'm over here looking at the NSCA, all the all the stuff they've got out for national conference, and looking. And I joined in 1999. So I was a phys ed, exercise science student, undergrad at John Carroll, played football there, uh, dislocated my shoulder, and that was essentially the end of my playing career. Uh, but then at the same time, basically, I got an internship with the Cleveland Indians. So I got to work uh, with, at, at that time, the head strength coach was Fernando Montez, uh, assistants were Joe Hughes, Tippy Toe Joe, and Carlo Alvarez. Those guys are still in the field yep. uh, coaching. And I didn't realize it at the time, but they, they introduced me to the field of strength and conditioning. They introduced me to the NSCA, uh, other organizations, and said, hey, take these classes, these certifications. Uh, and I, I remember I joined <clears throat> May 19th, 1999, I think it was, or May 26. Okay. Uh, so I'm coming up on this is 20 years now. Wow. Wow. Um, and so I just had a great experience with those guys and at the right place at the right time. At one point, you know, basically half of Major League Baseball strength coaches had come through the Cleveland Indian system. They were kind of ahead of the curve on strength conditioning, had coaches at, at, different, at, at different levels. Um, and then from there, luckily, one of the coaches there, again, knew somebody at Tennessee. I interviewed Tennessee, needed a baseball, football strength coach. I taught in the phys ed department my first year, was a head baseball strength coach. Did that for eight years. Did all my graduate work there. Um, you know, worked there with a lot of good people that are still in the field too. Uh, Johnny Long, uh, Chris Stewart, Eric Siano, and uh, had a you know Brian Van Vleet, Sean Gaunt. There were a lot of great guys. Uh, Rod Moore has, has been in and selling now too for different companies. Um, and then from there, after I graduated with my PhD and, and realized I wanted to make a jump to a professor. It's, it's, when you finish your PhD, you're kind of hot at that moment, too, and you're applying for jobs. And you, you could see, I could see the athletic department at Tennessee was changing. So it was a t- good time to go. And I liked the stimulation I got from research and writing and that kind of stuff, uh, which writing, I talked to other guys about this. It, at 30 years old or whatever, you're never going to think, you're, oh, I'm going to be a professor. You know, I'm going to start doing this kind of stuff and and next thing you know you really enjoy that process and doing that work and it's it's harder and more challenging than i think we kind of think and uh, get into it so anyway i, I owe a lot of credit too, to my doctoral advisor uh, norma mertz who is wonderful she just retired um, she was the hardest professor strength coach uh, she i had athletes come to my dissertation defense and afterwards they were they were joking that my workouts were easy compared to what her and the other uh, professors did to did to you and ask the questions of you during your defense uh, then from there was a professor at Southern Miss for five years. I coached I was a high school football coach and high school strength coach down there. And I actually coached at my kids' uh, gymnastics studio as well, doing speed training with six to about 16-year-old uh, female gymnasts, girls. Nice. Um, and that was an interesting experience too. Uh, so, you know, I, I had an athletic director once say, you know, coach is just coach. He was just referring to a kind of type of coach yeah. that, you know, it doesn't matter who you're coaching. I, I mean, I'll coach anybody you know yeah. i'll coach six-year-olds or i'll coach 60 year olds and i've coached i've been a personal trainer and done that too so i don't really care i just like coaching and being around people and, and now i like doing the educational aspects and yeah growing programs and writing papers and special issues and that kind of stuff so when did that when did the
1: switch flip i guess that the that like you were like okay this phd thing i can do this like you know and i'm, I'm gonna try it and you know, make that move. Did you know that you that was going to lead you into more uh, you know academia, that kind of stuff?
0: So I, I think of three thre- threads that popped up. So one, you know, very early on, my mom was had a PhD. Yeah. My dad had an MBA. So my mom was a superintendent of a school district in Cleveland, Ohio. So I kind of I th- I, you know she passed away when I was 13 from cancer. But so it was early on. It was never unfathomable to do it. You know, I had a great model in her, and uh, in, in just being a very sharp, strong woman that people. Uh, respected, uh, and and knew you better bring your A game with her. Uh, at Tennessee, I knew I kind of wanted to keep going and to keep taking classes, but when I started the program, I thought I might become an athletic director. I thought I'd probably coach until I was, you know, 45, 55, or whatever. And if I need to either retire or if I get fired, you know, that's kind of my backup plan. Uh, I always enjoyed teaching, right? We talk about the similarities between teaching and coaching. I enjoy teaching uh, classes at the university, too, so I knew the PhD would help with that but it really wasn't towards the end until uh, I started actually writing more and more on my dissertation. I wrote a little article in Training and Conditioning Magazine. Um, I really started to feel at home, you know, and find the fit. Uh, we talk, there's some literature in psychology about person and environment fit. And you find the fit of uh, higher education and writing. And so really towards the end, it was kind of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting a little bit stale in my coaching and not being challenged as much. and you know, the baseball team had been to the World Series. The football team had been to the SEC Championships. Um, and, and you, you know, coaching is tough because you, you can do a great job, I think, and still not have a lot of career mobility or opportunity for growth. And I thought that professor world would be a little bit mer- mer- more meritocratic and it would be more stable. Um, so I I took the leap to that. And I actually I had a couple interviews and phone calls right after I left coaching hmm. to get back in. Like, you know, pretty decent jobs, and it, it it didn't work out or I, or I declined them and and uh kind of found i think where i'm supposed to be at right now nice no that's cool yeah my mom was a, a
1: educator as well so i mean definitely i think i'm the first person uh in the immediate side that has a master's degree but it was definitely never yeah it was always like something that was you know, attainable or looked highly upon, you know, so definitely the motivation was also within, um, I think too, you know, we, you touched on a little bit about like, you know, not being fulfilled or knowing there was something more. Once you start going down this path and you're looking into sociological and psychological sides of coaching, you realized, right. That. Um, there wasn't maybe as much out there where there's a ton in the sport coaching world. There's a ton of research that's been done, but not in strength and conditioning. And so that's obviously, and clearly, uh, become a passion of yours and you're one of the leaders, you know, writing about it and stuff. So maybe talk a little bit about like what you saw as
0: disconnects and you know, yeah. how you even went down that path. Yeah. That's a, that's a great observation and, and point is that, um, I like to refer to, and I'm actually working on a presentation about this for the fall, but I think sociology of coaching 101 or 1.0, 1, 1. you know, was really the, the 2000s. And there was a lot of scholars at that point. You, not a lot, a handful of scholars. Uh, Jones, Potrack, Cushion, Gilbert. Um, not Gilbert from a more psychological or social psych perspective. But uh, Robin Jones, Jim Dennison, Paul Potrack came afterwards. Uh, Chris Cushion was in there but those guys really laid the foundation. You know, they wrote a lot of seminal articles and the one article that we published, I published with Joe Mills in Strength Condition Journal towards the sociology of strength conditioning yep. was kind of modeled after some of their work and pointing out some of these aspects. Again, that's what sociology does is, and, and when I found that, uh, in grad school and, and came across that more. I found it more and more interesting, but uh, you, could, you could see it in other fields, in education, healthcare, but not so much in coaching and definitely not so much in strength conditioning. Uh-huh. But it gave you the theoretical language just to make sense of the stuff that coaches talk about. When coaches talk about you know, um, program design, when they talk about relating to athletes, administrators, overcoming some of the managerial issues, uh, the complexities of dealing with conflict or knowing what exercises to choose and, and how to vary programs and how to move bodies through the weight room and, and train them and what's the best best or optimal and making sense of all the language in the field. Sociology to me really helps give me the, an understanding, a way of framing that stuff more so and make sense of it What I, you know theoretically. And all I, all I mean by that is a greater understanding, a more broad, deeper understanding of it Um, not just kind of repeating the same words the same cycle uh, and saying stuff without really making sense of it it's more like ranting or uh, complaining and observations than it is we'll say analysis yeah 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 yeah
1: and and uh i think too from uh you know obviously from what you're just saying there too you know it's you were able to now be like, all right. Well, we also need to give these people like practical application of it, right? And and kind of also why you ended up getting to start the DU program and, and what you guys are doing, which I would say it's a very applied program. Uh, you know, even though it is 100% online, the 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 way that you have people doing. Uh, Different exercises you know throughout the program and, and the things you're doing, whether it' be reflecting whatever, looking introspectively at your coaching practice you know um, kind of stems from that is' not just like well, this is the problem, blah, complain about it, but like here's how you change stuff
0: yeah I mean one of the things right, and, and this is no novel thing this is in education, and that's where myself and then Dr. Kuk, you know Clayton and I come from education backgrounds, um, you know Dr. Mills as well that you're going to look at, you know, one of the guiding questions we ask ourselves is, what does the coach need to know and do at the end of this course or the end of this program? Uh, what's the essential or the, what's called in, in education the signature pedagogical assignment or act? So what's the key thing that we're going to do and build on in this class? Um, and that could be, and it varies from class to class. And that's where it helps to understand learning theory and be able to have a, an appropriate activity and assignments that are going to help facilitate that outcome. Yeah. So if it's demonstrating you know, that you can do various feedback, instruction, cues, and motor learning, then that's what we do. Biomechanics, it's developing projects, analyses. Uh, in my sociology class, it's critically thinking and, and actually role modeling and role playing how you would interact with, around sensitive subjects such as race and gender, uh, diversity. Uh, it's also going to be looking at the social construction of knowledge and, and what effect it has, Right, how power and knowledge combine to influence people. Uh, and why we privilege some knowledges over other knowledges. Mm. And so we do this and we show this, and we, we, in all of our work, we try to have very applied examples because we live and coach in the real world. You know, it's, it's not a matter of just te- the technical rational model, which is that you just need to know a technique or, uh, you know, rationally picks uh, an exercise selection and a, and a load, and three sets of five, 70%, everything is great. We're good. Right. You know, the, the, we're not going to replace, I think, the the – critical thinking and the dynamics of coaching with uh, a technician that is just going to fine tune or really be knowledgeable about one piece, specific piece that doesn't understand the whole and how that piece intersects with a multitude of other factors. Right. And that's such a bit, that's such the biggest picture because when you get into this
1: field, all you hear about and, and you know, you, is like relationship building, connecting with athletes, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, that's not in the essentials textbook. There, there's not a section right. on the exam on, uh, for lack of a better word, the art of coaching, right? Yeah. <laughs> so
0: and when people say that one, too, Robin Jones wrote a paper years ago, too, where he mentioned that we use the word art when really we should be talking about the social complexities and the interactions in coaching. Which I think is a better way of understanding it. Yeah. We talk about right on the billboard behind me. It says the science and art strength condition. Yeah. What the heck do we mean when we keep saying art? Right. I mean, who, who in here, like when we think of art too, I'm an artist or the, the art of it. Yeah. What, is, what does that mean? Like, oh, I, I, I choose different variables or the way I approach things is like in a sculptor. Are, are we painting <laughs> pictures? I, right. I don't get it. So on that regard, in terms of being the artist that we associate with the aesthetics of things, no, n- nobody in the field is like that. That's not huh. what we mean. What we're talking about is the the interaction of factors, the complexities of coaching. But when we don't have the language to describe it any better, then we reduce our discourse, our language to art. Art. Yeah. Something's complex, or there's a we don't have a clear regression model, where we can't predict this thing. You know, forbid we should use uh, you know qualitative research or uh, other analytic tools to make sense of it. Right. Which well, is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, that's perfect segue, too,
1: into, like, uh, what we're going to talk later about. Go ahead. Well, well get a hot. <laughs> I, I, yeah,
0: no, I got excited because I forgot to mention that the the paper I'm doing right now with uh, Clayton Cooklick, Dr. Cooklick, I work with, and then two of our students, Joe Maldonado, former yep. NSCA intern, and then Sean Maloney, um, is looking at strength conditioning coaches and what we're calling their, their language and their practices on YouTube. So we've analyzed nice. about 60 videos right now. And when you listen to the coaches and see what they do, so much of it is related to the social psychological aspects, yeah. the managerial aspects. Uh, overwhelmingly on the, on the coding sheet that we've developed, there's not much about, you know, there's the there's stuff about reps and sets and exercise selection and load, but the other uh, 80% of it is about relationships, motivation, identity, culture, et cetera, et cetera. And just like you said, in the Essentials textbook, there's only one chapter on psychology. Um, but there's not much on, there's a little bit on the managerial side, but all of the social, cultural, pedagogical aspects, again, the, the overarching kind of theme seems to be that we use, you know, biomechanics, physiology, nutrition, and we take those findings from research unproblematically, do them to people, and things work out great. Right. And so the, the and that's even how we talk about it in the field at times is exercise prescription. Yeah. You know, as I write you a prescription, I tell you, in a sense, what to do, and you yeah. go do it. Right. And we think that that just solves all the problems somehow. And, and yeah. pedagogically, we don't even understand that that's a particular framework or approach to it. And there's other approaches as well. We don't have to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. When I th-
1: what made me think of when you were talking about the art of coaching and how we just, you know, use that as a catch-all for whatever else uh, is philosophy, too. And, again, we're doing a pre-con today on, uh, you know, crafting your coaching philosophy. Uh, we wrote an article on it in, in SCA Coach 5.1, which wasn't too long ago, published. Um, and you did the research in 2010 in the scj article that you can talk about a little bit because i thought that was a great article um that i obviously was the kind of the one of the you know cornerstones of what inspired me to pick that as you know my um kind of final project for the class that you know we co-authored because you had to edit so much um
0: everybody, that's the thing i mean we talk about it, everybody gets edited man i mean like you know, and people submit to NSCA codes, and we did a presentation. Maury Colbert and I did a presentation at NSCA, I think, last year about this stuff. But just, just read the books on on writing, and and work on your process, just like you would tell an athlete, man. I mean, you're not going to walk in the first day and be great at the power clean or snatch. Right. It's the same kind of thing, man. Get feedback, yeah. work on it, you'll get better. And yeah. I got ripped up too, and I I love my advisor for it, but dang, right. she was. Brutal. Oh, 100%. Made me better, you know, a million times
1: better of a writer. Um, but, yeah, let, let's talk about that yeah. because just like we were saying, the art, you know, is kind of a catch-all phrase in this field. Philosophy, especially related to coaching as I've seen it, is really been, you know, ruined as a term. And basically what it – when most – 99% of the time when someone asks you what your philosophy is when it's in this strength and conditioning profession, they really just mean what's your um, – you know what's your attitude on this or what's your mm-hmm. uh, stance it mm-hmm. doesn't have anything to do with philosophy It doesn't have anything to do with anything bigger thinking what's your philosophy on speed training what's your philosophy on training in sand what's your philosophy on you know juggling kettlebells yeah. it's 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 crazy and hence why i went down that rabbit hole but again you did you did the research that set it up to be able to you know take it to another level so maybe talk yeah. about what you found
0: <laughs> well, i mean real quickly too about it, but you made I think in, in that article you made the observation of trying to differentiate between like a, what we end up calling a coaching philosophy and a training philosophy that in the field of coaching we tend to think of our values beliefs as our coaching philosophy but then like the thing like what's your stance what's your belief on you know Olympic lifts or uh, power lifting sand training bags whatever the, the device might be or the method uh, so I think that's an important differentiation uh, and that's all we can try to do too is to offer insights and new observations or challenge existing observations to see how we can think more fluidly, flexibly, uh, and have a variety of so-called tools in our toolkit. And that's how I think of, of, you know, uh, social and behavioral science stuff that I do is that just like strength conditioning, you've got a variety of tools to use, and I can use the variety of tools in different scenarios uh, and also just be more of a complicated thinker, uh, more educated in in truly uh, what we think of education. So in that in that article, I think about too what I've tried to do and why I get excited about doing what I do. I wrote that article in the Strength Conditioning Journal, the discipline of philosophy in strength and conditioning. So I basically reviewed the literature because same thing. I was reading it and I felt this problem. You know, right? Like I'm reading stuff and I have a I feel I come back to strength and conditioning and I and I sense something is off. You kind of intuit, and so I wanted to write this article so people would quit. Using philosophy in a very low-level way, like, yeah, I think you pointed to, but also in a derogatory way. I think people, you know, some of the so-called hardcore scientists would say, ah, you know, philosophy, that's, you know, all wishy-washy. And, you know, we really can't understand, you know, objectivity and scientific facts and that kind of stuff. And to me, that's not what philosophy is. And I think even hundreds or thousands of years ago, uh, a lot of great philosophers didn't create the binary between science and practice or between mm-hmm. scientific thinking and other ways of thinking. You know, the, the thinking about, thinking, for example, like Einstein, you take it, now we can develop bombs and, the, and he's developed uh, his theory of, of physics, uh, relativity, and he also was very concerned, though, about how that could be put in practice. You know, what would that li- would lead to? And, and mm-hmm. it would lead to mass destruction at times, too. So I want to, in the same way, kind of right, pull back philosophy from being thrown out and dismissed as something that's wishy-washy, but also let's look at it and see what people are doing. So I think we put, came up with five categories, how people in the field had tended to use it, you know, as a method. They talked about philosophy as a method, as a training theory, as a framework, as a belief or a value. Um, so tried to offer something on that one, and then in the in Where you went with it was to kind of add and and extend, I think, to training philosophy. So as a coach, hear your beliefs and values. And we had very concrete examples, right? So we we had to think about this in practice. We talked about, like, the Olympic lift. Like, if you do a snatch compared to a med ball throw, both of them might improve your power output. But the snatch is arguably riskier. It's got more danger. It's more complexity to it. It's harder uh, than a med ball throw. I've never coached anybody and hurt themselves doing a med ball throw. But occasionally somebody will tweak a wrist, or you know, uh, if they, whether they've got good technique or not, they can. Uh, the The forces on a snatch are much greater, so right, it can add up and, and lead to cumulative stress. What that says about you as a coach, and what you value, and how much risk you're going to take, and how you're going to approach your training, uh, and then tying it into your training philosophy. So our training philosophy values safety of the athlete's primary. Well, does that mean you're going to do? heavier loads and you see this all the time on social media right right we, we somebody's got a video of usually a teenager doing a heavier load than they should be because they got bad technique and half of us lose our minds right you know and, and the other set half will well you know maybe they're trying to work hard and just kind of overcome that that hump and you know they're trying to get the kids fired up and this and that well that there's the connection between your coaching philosophy and your training philosophy yeah You know, what do you value and what are you really doing in practice and and how are you integrating all those things? And you can say scientifically, that's why I think we have to go beyond science. Our philosophy is the science and the practice and the values, it's all integrated together. It's not a binary between, you know, philosophy and science. Uh, I think the great philosophers even said that too, is, is they use scientific thinking, but they also thought about the values of that science, how they collect the data, how they analyze the world. It all goes together. And, and we live in a world right now sometimes where we think we are so objective, and, and it's not. Uh, and we're trying to go over that and measure things and reduce things to certain little minute variables. Right. Uh, and, and that's one way of doing science, but it's not the only way. And, it, and even that science then can be understood sociologically, more, more reflexively than that science itself. That science itself then can't analyze itself as, as well as I think a social scientist can. Yeah.
1: And like you, you alluded to, it goes into into the coaching practice. So like what's reflected in our coaching practice is probably what, you know, what we're, what our philosophy is, or it should be. And, and therefore too, if we're, uh, you know, if we're saying that safety of the athlete is its primary importance, but then you don't teach kids how to miss lifts all of a sudden, wait a minute. Well, this is now, you know, not demonstrated in my coaching practice, even though I said this is something yep. I stand for. And so there, there, I think, gives us a better opportunity as practitioners to evaluate ourselves a little better, be a little more and, self-reflective.
0: Just yeah, another example, right? We, we know that Olympic lifts and their der- derivations, a lot of research on that, a lot of research lately on isometric mid-thigh pull. People talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it, we talk about it. Next thing you know, that's like our our thinking, right? That becomes the dominant way that we think about it. And we're teaching students and others in the field are making observations and they're watching us lift and who's coaching. And they all go, oh, well, I'm going to have to do Olympic lifts and derivations in my program now. Because scientifically, it's being studied and so-called valid, you know, right? We're showing that it produces a lot of power. So in in a way, we kind of validate it then everybody starts doing it but there's no thought process of wait a minute now what's your context you know what's your context you're one coach or two coaches in a school of 500 athletes do you really have to do that well i guess i don't no you don't and that's the critical thinking piece and the actual taking that knowledge out of the lab into practice that requires education that requires critical thinking that requires understanding of um coaching contexts and how those contexts matter and uh, then I'll go f- go further to saying even when you tell an athlete or if you had that again we talked about with the snatch then that when you pick a certain exercise then it says a certain thing about you and what you value and what you're trying to do right. and so just being mindful of that kind of stuff so it's, it's you know one of the theorists that I draw upon is, is Michel Foucault and he talks about how all knowledge can be dangerous mm-hmm. and so whether it be in a lab or in applied practice, making that observation that I need to be mindful about what's going on. Not, not, and we're always trying to push the field too. I think this is one of the fundamental differences in our field compared to, and people make comparisons to medicine and healthcare and nursing and physicians and strength conditioning. They're about homeostasis. They're about correcting from injury and bringing people back to return to play. Whereas we're constantly tinkering to enhance performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, to have the team or the individual run faster or perform better, which requires a, a different approach. It's just fundamentally different, too. Uh, that's a great point. Uh, and since you brought him
1: up, you went, you went into the Foucault rabbit hole. <laughs> Why, uh why? Why do strength and conditioning coaches, or let's say this, maybe not all of them, because not not everyone's gonna listen to this and run out and look this stuff up. But why do people? Why do strength and conditioning coaches, maybe that are a little more self-aware and interested in you know changing the way they do things? Why should they look at Foucault and yeah. what he's t- written about? Uh, so this is where we smile at each other here. And, 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 <laughs> and everyone that's in the DU Sport Coaching program that's listening to this is smiling <laughs> oh, as well. This guy, Foucault.
0: Foucault. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, so uh, you may be thinking too, as people are looking for books, right? Obviously, Foucault was a prolific author and wrote a lot of books. But Google, you know, sociological imagination or top 10 books in sociology or, you know, world's best sociological or social theorists if you really want to challenge yourself to think differently and, and have a new perspective. We often share the leadership books uh, and, the, and the coaching specific books, but we all know those things. Right. So if you want to think a little bit differently, expand it, do something like that. Uh, not just you know the same periodization books and you know, the resistance training books. And again, those are all fundamental, have a purpose too. Um, for me, Foucault, when I read Foucault, and I read specifically, if I started with uh, actually the uh, Discipline and Punish then I also read Madness and Civilization, his first book. So I've been studying Foucault now for about 10, 11 years. But he offers a way of kind of metacognition, if you want to use that term. He offers a way of understanding the knowledge that's produced in the world, what that knowledge does in practice in everyday life. He was not just thinking about ideals and logic. He was a philosopher of practice. And that's why I think sociologists gravitate towards him, because he was talking about this world that we live in, and looking at our thinking about things. And he studied medicine and um, the sanity and the um, people's mental capacities in, in hospitals and, and people that were insane. Um, so we looked at, in sport coaching, there's quite a few people that have used his work to look at coaching. And so when you read Discipline and Punish, and people before me said this, and I didn't, I read this afterwards, but while you're reading Discipline and Punish, you're going, yeah, yeah, this is good. This is right. This is how the factory works. This is how we train athletes as machines. This is how we we be efficient, and we're we're going to do the best we can, and we're going to keep people moving along, and this is great. But that wasn't Foucault's point. Foucault's point was to show that as well, as, so it minutely detailed it, but then it, we show the problems of it. We show the unintended consequences. We show how that logic, that overall knowledge that we've created is – Creating some problems and producing so he wanted to connect power and knowledge, which is briefly uh, power is like an, a force it's a force relation of how things are influenced and how we move kind of like magnets. and when you tweak one magnet move it to other magnets, you know they, they intersect and things are constantly in flux. and when you think about knowledge and the interaction of people in place with different physical bodies and tools, Foucault provides that resource that those theoretical tools to make sense of it. So when I was coaching and looking at it, I wanted to try to be empowering, transformational. I wanted to be a great coach, uh, inspiring. I wanted you know, all these great things to enhance performance, You know, just be phenomenal. And you start wondering and going, wait, wait a minute, though. How come, how come we're having conflict? How come the athletes are yelling back? Or how come they're not doing what they're told, so to speak? Or how come they are doing what they're told, unquestionably, mm-hmm. right. and they're not asking questions? You know, how come this guy's back hurts and he's not telling me? Um, you know, right? When you when you have all these little things going on, and you're like, man, what is it? And, and what Foucault does is he says, hey, maybe you're producing some of the problems here. Maybe the way that you're approaching this doesn't have to be like this, and you should make a tweak, and not just a little tweak that keeps the the factory going, but challenge the factory, realizing, hey, people aren't robots. The weight room isn't a factory. You don't have to train like this. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it, whenever I point it back to a strength coach, strength coaches tend not to be so strict and controlling and regimented in their own programming, but we do it overwhelmingly with athletes. Right. Right? We're all experts. We're all scientists. We all have to tell the athletes what to do all the time so rigidly that they don't like being there, that they're going to be resisting what you're doing. Um, you know, they're going to maybe keep their scholarship or make their money or they're going to suffer in order to achieve that goal. And that says more about their character and their resilience than it does about our coaching. Right.
1: Yeah. That's one of the things I think about too. And, uh, that rigidity, uh, you know, when you think about, you know, well, cause we say it all the time. Oh, you know, oh, we're, you know, we want to empower our athletes mm-hmm. to be better or whatever, whatever. And then we've never given them a single choice and, and they've trained for four years and they couldn't even figure out now if they go into the gym, what they should be doing. Like, shouldn't they be pretty darn good at figuring out what they should be doing after playing a sport yeah. for four
0: years um and people have used Foucault to look at athlete career transitions and have showed right that what you just said right we keep telling people what to do and don't really educate them we just train them like dogs or like horses right we train them we reinforce what they can already do yeah. we don't actually educate or empower them to make decisions so when they get out of sport they can't or they don't right. they have a hard time adjusting And sport then doesn't really build character like we keep saying, but it really creates what Foucault says is docile bodies. It creates moldable, shapeable pieces of clay that are productive at times, but then problematic and unintended consequences at the end, too. Yeah. So
1: anybody looking into Foucault, you're you're going to have a heavy read. I'm going to forewarn you. <laughs> Dr. G is, is pretty smart and he's been doing it 10, 11 years and uh, he's got a grasp on it. But we, you know, cool thing too, you mentioned, you know, again, you've written so much uh, books and articles and, you know, we, we had a special issue of uh, SCJ that you were a co-author on or um, editor on and, um, myself and dr mills and a couple other mm-hmm. students had an article in there uh related to some of the Foucault stuff so if you guys are interested in that you know maybe start with that article in, a, in the special issue of scj but maybe yeah again you know we've gotten to a point now where we have a special issue of scj on sociology and strength and conditioning so you know it's a pretty good sign that we're moving
0: well, i started with a special issue this is about six years ago or seven years ago i think now maybe even eight with uh um, coach education you know, so uh, I remember I wanted to do, I wanted to take all that stuff I kind of had been doing in grad school and bring it to strength conditioning. And so I sent in a proposal to Jeff Chandler you know, the, and, and thank him as editor of SCJ to entertain that uh, opportunity. So we published that one on coach education. Then I helped with one on football and female athletes. But then the last two were really, uh, with Whitney Moore, we did just this year, earlier this year in 2019, the one on half issue on psychology. And then the December issue I think it was of last year 2018 with Dr. Mills we co-edited the one on sociology so for me again when I look at it the coach education one and then the psychology and the sociology one are really bringing the social and behavioral sciences and I was glad to see too that here on the research abstract submission process now for the NSCA National Conference you can submit uh Proposals under social and behavioral sciences. Nice. Yeah, you know, so much, and, and it's great. I mean, much of the field of strength conditioning has, has been scientifically, again, I don't, I'm not unproblem, problematically at times, you know, been validated and where you have tons of physiology, biomechanics, nutrition. And it has improved our understanding of performance and why do some of the things happen. What, why do, what are the mechanisms of uh, hypertrophy or strength gains and power gains? And that, that science is very useful for that. But now I think we're entering. Hopefully, other people bring other people on board and enlarging our view of the field to take care of social and personal psychological concerns. Yeah, you know, and we can bring. And it's hard because the right the the CSCS exam, which is kind of our gateway to the field too, is heavily uh, physical science, right. Right? and where we we need to make room for people to theorize, to think, to problem solve in a rigorous way about some of our personal coach development issues personal training i say coach i mean everybody i mean personal trainers t-sac facilitators operators uh, but then also the researchers and the scholars and the, and the policy makers yeah. that when we want to try to uh, have more diversity in the field right. when we want to try to create different pedagogical aspects and this isn't anything new this is for the folks that were you know the phys ed majors in the field as well yeah, you know the yeah, old yeah. some of us that are old enough to be old phys ed majors. You used to have to lead the class. You had to do student teaching. You can see a difference in the field in the in the applied actual doing of coaching. Somebody that has that pedagogical background compared to somebody that's got an exercise science background right. that's all lab based, or even somebody that maybe came into the field from a different background in in business or you know, you know social science humanities or something like that.
1: Yeah, uh, how much? you think of the like uh emotional intelligence you know that side of things too comes into play from like you said we've all seen it we've seen people come from a you know super which is great a super exercise science based heavy physical science program they and now they might be lacking for for lack of a better term the The other side, right? The the emotional intelligence, the connectability, the relatability, Mm -hmm. empathy side of things. You know, what's that disconnect?
0: And and to add to the ethical side of that, that a lot of times we think that I just need enough interpersonal skills and enough empathy, enough trust, and and then what? Then all all is good. No, wait a (laughs) minute now, right? That's how people get hurt too. That's how they get abused. Uh, that's how we tell them we're just using the interpersonal skills to manipulate and coerce people. So it's a very subtle form of power. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, they don't know how much you, they won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Well, what does care mean? Right? When we say caring, and I just, I'm doing a study on this now too, when coaches talk about care, they often talk about it in a very altruistic way, but what they're really doing is subtly influencing people. They're not really aware of power because, we, again, we don't, we don't theorize power enough. Yep. And then what they do is eventually they're just using the interpersonal school. It's like a, it's like a cracker, right? They're using that to, as a pathway to the dip. The dip is I want to tell you what to do. I want you to do what you're told, yep. but I care about you. And <laughs> let me build trust in this relationship and tell you nice things and be <laughs> nice to you. right? I'm a nicer, friendlier coach. Right. And now watch me manipulate you. Yeah. And I'm going to get you to run through a wall. I mean, even that language, like, oh, that kid would run through a wall for me. Right. Well, there's a problem running through walls, right? <laughs> right, guys? like, There's a problem when you go out to practice, right? And there's certain benefit, too, going out there, but also looking in the basketball. Right. You know, when a guy sits yeah. out or when the guys aren't playing the bowl games now, yeah. uh, hey, there's a reason why they're doing that, too. They're not trying to go out there and end their careers, right. and they're trying to keep their scholarships or go get paid. That has, a, that has some sense to it. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Anyway, I think the, the emotional points are huge. Um, there's, an, there's a scholar right now, too, one of the guys, Paul Potrak. Oh, yeah. Potrak is probably the leading scholar on the emotions, or one of the leading scholars in emotions and coaching. Uh, you know, We cover right some of his work and Arlie Hochschild's and Irving Goffman's work. Um, and it's very useful to understand this. I remember when I coached down in Mississippi, I was, I, I was already familiar with this work because it wasn't too long ago. And the way that I slowly integrated into this high school system, I didn't go in there telling everybody, hey, I coached. Uh, right. I've been coaching strength coach for 10 years, and here's what right. I've done, and I've right. got championships and blah, blah, blah. No, the, the football coach down there was 65 years old and had been coaching for longer, twice right. as long as I had. Right. You know, and been very, very successful. So I, I hang out. I do what I'm told. I coach up the technique. and I've let the, the relationship and the trust slowly build to where after a couple months they're like, all right, you obviously like the strength conditioning thing a lot more than we do right, right, uh, right. Know, we're, we're happy watching film for you know six hours yeah, yeah. you're happy in the weight room for six hours yeah so why don't you go ahead and you know start training the guys and take what you want and, and devise the program yada yada yada
1: yeah so that's part of the swap yeah no that's cool that's critical too to be able to to realize you know where you stand in the big scheme of things like you said the guy was probably coaching. Longer than you'd been alive, almost, right? And you're not going to come in there on day one and tell them, well, you know, my master's degree was in X.
0: Yeah. (laughs) He has. Coach Wheat, he, uh, he asked me, too. He shows me some speed videos. He says, you know, I think you can help our guys with, uh, you know, learn how to run a 40 and this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, meanwhile, like in the back of my head, he's got my resume there. Right. And he was playing to me, too. He wanted yeah. to see how I came off. Yeah. You know, uh, and he was he was really bright, really bright guy. And those guys have studied, and they got degrees in phys ed from Southern Miss, yeah. you know, yeah, years yeah. ago. But uh, I remember thinking, you know, yeah, like, i'm usa track and field level three sprint certified <laughs> you know I've, I've worked with guys like yeah this will be no problem yeah. uh, but you know it, you don't want to come off like that and you also want to be a team player too right so right. you know um
1: you talked about you know writing and all the articles you've done i know you're, you've got a bunch of books going on or some chapters in books as well yeah. um Tell us about that, because you also before we started rolling here, we were mentioning, uh, you know, how the um, how your actual um, editing still at this at this point in your career, you know, how you how these guys who are editing the books you're writing on were editing the crap out of what you wrote, and like, yeah. you know, at this point, I'm pretty sure it's it it's obviously a lot easier for you, right? You know, you've you've got a decade now of 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 mental lifting of writing, you know, so probably. Your starting point, my starting point, even now, writing are, are, you know, totally different. So we would think you're just going in and banging this out and getting done sending in and, you know, print that thing. It's good. <laughs>
0: it, it, the unfortunate side effect at times from my dissertation advisor, from reading more books actually on writing and, and trying to really study your writing as a craft, just like we study coaching, uh, has, has got me so slow nowadays at times because I scrutinize the organizational structure, you know, what's the composition of the entire piece? Does it have to flow like this? You know, what about the sentence? You know, do I have the reference here? Do I need a reference? Uh, What point am I trying to make? What research and reasoning do I need to use to justify it? And then like word choice, you know, I didn't, and you guys, you've seen this because I look up words, you know, I try to look up and and realize that I'm using the wrong word or that there's a better word. And those things kind of stop and give me pause and, and pains. And you're looking at the you know, same thing when we edit for various journals you're just looking over all this stuff and i've had to to be faster at times because people don't need everything they don't need every little word and every red ink on everything you know that's not even effective but going through things and just trying to pick out the main points so i just did this yesterday yeah yesterday morning with an nsca coach article i had uh, a young coach stock student that is supervised uh, by, you know, big, big name professor in the field. And I was putting a word out months ago about submitting to NSCA coach. And he sent in an article, a draft of an article, so a manuscript. And I looked it over and when I was skimming it, I wrote up the email back to him. I had about six different points of feedback. You know, just kind of big ideas to help structure, change some pronouns, help the flow. And also one very practical point because he talked about the science of core training but he didn't really, he talked about a comprehensive model of core training, but didn't really give a full example. So I just wrote back and said, hey, the coaches in this that are reading this journal in particular would really benefit from and wanna see a more fleshed out program design now. Not, not just talk about it, but actually show them one thing and use that as a tool throughout the article. And that's not like a, a, a huge rewrite. It's gonna take some work, but it's, I think it's a very good point. Um, you know, and it provides, so anyway, you, you, as you, the more you do this type of thing, You get over again that fear. It's just like when you learn how to lift or run and your technique stinks and you're kind of embarrassed about it. You know, you got to have a good coach and a supportive network to keep learning about it. So the two big projects that we've got going on now, myself and Dr. Bettina Cowery, who's been to NSC headquarters. She's not a – Dr. Cowery. Yep. Dr. Cowery got a shout-out. She's a professor up in Cape Breton University and coaching and studies master's athletes. And uh, we've got an edited book hopefully coming out. Realistically, it'll probably be early 2019, 2020. Yeah. Um, but it's a 23 or so chapter textbook on instructional strategies for coach developers. Cool. So coach developers is the term basically of teachers of coaches. You know, and that can be not only professors, but it could be, you know, you as a right. coach developer for the NSCA and all the yeah. coaches who reach out to you. Uh, anybody that works with the National Governing Body is a coach developer. So we've got a chapter, 23 chapters or so in there uh, for a variety of tools to help coach, or coach developers coach, develop coaches. So we're looking at online learning, hybrid learning, face-to-face. Uh, we've got a special section uh, that's really cool too to be able to have. We've got chapters on coaching or teaching coaches of Special Olympics, Paralympics, uh, women in coaching, uh, race in coaching, so racial issues in coaching, um, so then we've got a kind of special section there. Then we've got chapters on using case study projects, a personal learning coach, kind of like a consultant. Uh, taking world tours, like a touring kind of coach, hmm. uh, using actually one of the contributors is Catherine Russell too. Oh, nice uh, with the yep. NSCA. Yep. Cool, so, very cool. Uh,
1: yeah, so that one's going to be uh, a bunch of different people on the each chapter kind yep. of thing. Yep. That's
0: a, a edited book, so we're the editors. <laughs> okay. So we have a, we had a framework for every chapter. We kind of knew what we wanted. We saw a gap in the field again, and said, Hey, this is the framework that we think we want to do. Provide that structure, and we reached out to teaching experts that are in those areas that have done those methods, those instructional strategies, to offer their theory and practice. Nice. So offer up their insights to help a coach developer teach coaches. So there'll be something in there for really anybody trying to get better as a coach as well as teach others. Uh, and that's kind of like our next thing I'm thinking about too a little bit too is you know, when I was leaving Tennessee too, I was kind of in charge of coach development on the staff. Yep. You know, and so people, uh, and in that coach education special issue in SCJ, we started that kind of stuff, talking about the internship and how to cor- how to make right. a curriculum and that kind of stuff. So. And that, that
1: book is going to be available through who? Rutledge. Rutledge. Yeah, cool. Rutledge. Yeah. yeah. Rutledge. And you've got another. What was the one uh, we've read? you have a chapter in uh, it was sociology of sport coaching there's another was it the research in sport coaching one? maybe the research one was yeah the autoethnography one uh, yeah. yeah 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 autoethnography yeah. Tell, talk about that a little bit that's a that's a subject autoethnography that I had never really heard yeah. about Or, or and it, found, it seems to me an interesting way that I think more coaches might get into writing from that yep. s- stance, you know?
0: Yep. So I think autoethnography is also called, so auto means that's in that research method and sport coaching textbook. Uh, so that's a few years old in that chapter. Autoethnography, auto means self, ethno meaning culture, agraphy meaning like the writing of or the producing of it. So it's a, it's an analysis of culture, but a focus on yourself too. Not in a, and this is a critique of it, not in a self serving, navel gazing, narcissistic way. It's not well, when I, here's my altruisms or aphorisms. You know, here's, here's me telling you why I'm such a great coach type of thing. It's not that. It's about learning and those learning lessons and one's own experience in society and using and making sense of it too. So using theory and research to make sense of our experiences. Um, and then also another option is, is a more of a literary approach where the story of it T- is, is the beginning the middle of the end there's a plot there's conflict there's resolution and you're trying to provide a moral and a point you're providing that uh, wisdom to somebody but in a very rigorous way not you know just in uh, I, I guess in, in John Wooden or, or Nietzsche's kind of aphoristic kind of a style uh, you could do that that'd be really interesting um, but you see the published autobiographies really are more here's what um, yeah, well hell I, d- I just did I did one strength conditioning you know That's why I used Foucault in the first paper I did with Foucault. I looked at my own experiences of disciplining athletes, of how I used strength conditioning knowledge to control time, bodies, uh, the spacing of athletes, the, the orderly flow of training, and some of those unintended or negative consequences that I've talked about. Yeah. Uh, so that was an autoethnography of my own experience coaching in the weight room. Yeah. And I've written a couple of those now. Um, so that's a, a theoretically or a qualitatively rigorous way of offering knowledge and constructing knowledge uh, of yourself with a focus on yourself in certain cultures and contexts yeah
1: i I thought it was a super interesting way a little different different from a readership standpoint too the The message that you're picking up is maybe a little bit easier, for lack of a better word, yep. to read, you know, to, to grasp because of the storytelling
0: yep. type of it. Um, the storytelling, I really like that as a way of producing scholarship Yeah, is telling stories because we resonate more easily with stories. Totally. Than we do right. traditional academic papers. Right. We're like, right. you know, falling asleep halfway through or you, right. you can't see yourself in this. Yeah. And, and you're like, all right, am I supposed to extrapolate right, from this? Right,
1: because it can be hard to do that, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But no. and, it, and that's the difference, right, between sociology and other fields. The sociology is already everyday life. Right. Whereas the other fields, they talk about translational research. Mm-hmm. You know, as, oh, I'm going to take my lab findings or my, you know, uh, really, you know, the thing like biomechanics where we've got markers on people and we can study them in everyday life, but somehow, or or GPS trackers. Somehow we're supposed to take this data and translate it into something meaningful and effective to enhance performance too. Um, So I think sociology in that regard kind of has a different, obviously a different approach where it's already talking about everyday life. So the idea of being applied doesn't even not make sense to me because I'm looking at practice. Right, right. We're making sense of practice. Yeah, Yeah. it's applied all the time. Um, All
1: right, so Kind of wrap things up let's go back uh, people are super interested in this uh, what's what, give me uh, three books that they need to uh, pick up <laughs> first and foremost or articles to to tee this up uh, and, and get their get on the path to their coaching practice yeah. getting improved
0: uh, so for me all right, so one would be because any type of good handbook does this there's a handbook of sport coaching and there's excellent chapters throughout that book but it, there's also a lot of excellent authors it provides uh, a who's who of kind of doing people things that were doing stuff in the field and then all those references and that book's going to be updated probably every five years just like the essentials cool book. so you got the handbook of sport coaching there's a social for me the sociology of sport coaching is a go-to uh, book as well um edited by robin jones and company uh that that for me too when that came out well it didn't come out until like 2010 or so 2009. But those guys right, were doing the research in the 2000s for that book. And that really was uh, the, the first kind of sociology sport coaching book, uh, both published by Rutledge. Uh, you want one more, huh? <laughs> I'm trying to. Third is always the hardest thing. Uh, you got the learning and sport coaching book. Yeah. Uh, I like to think that, that our textbook with Dr. Calorie will be a go-to source. Great. I think it will be actually for, for coach developers. Yep. Nice. Um, I'm thinking th- there's another. I mean, there's just so many good books. Uh, there's one I had a chapter in on women in sport coaching. Cool. Uh, by Rutledge as well. Nicole Lavoie wrote a great book on that one. Um, I don't know what else. That's a good start. That's a good start. Uh, again, if
1: anybody is you know more interested in this than before or well maybe quickly tell us a little bit about the sport coaching program at denver um obviously we 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 touched on it on the surface but if someone strength and conditioning coach sport coach whoever's listening to this is interested in getting a master's degree it's 100 online I, i thought the content was awesome and applicable to my everyday life but maybe talk about that and the certificate a little bit and i don't know maybe you guys have something new coming down the pipeline we always got something new. i've got (laughs) got the
0: big reveal here at the end for anybody that's still tuning in (laughs) of course i do um so the masters degree they hired me to start the program from scratch back in 2014. it's 46 credits we're on a quarter system so we've got four quarters throughout the year they're all 10 weeks long Uh, each class uh, is about preparing coaches for applied practice so again, there is no science and practice or theory in practice. For us, it's praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. It's all together.
1: Talking about practice. Just talk practice. about practice, man. Talking about practice. Just talk,
0: you know, I use that clip in class too. <laughs> uh, so you get the masters, yeah. And, and it's. I had a guy that I like. He, he's an art professor, sports psychology guy, more. And he looked at our curriculum and he said, "Man, I wouldn't have designed it any other way." And I, and I and it's funny because he's really an interdisciplinary kind of scholar too. And I said, "Well, that means that really means a lot coming from him too." Um, and so it's half kind of physical science, half social science and humanities. So we've got that. That's been going strong. There's about 40 or so students in that program, and that's great. We're able to have small classes. You know, I think our average class size is about 12. I've got a class this quarter with three, another one with six, and then my strength conditioning this quarter only has 12. Um, and then from there, we offered uh, last year was the first year we have a 24 credit graduate certificate in strength conditioning and fitness coaching. So that's more of a streamlined learn how to be a strength coach, personal trainer now, Uh, get introduced or uh, have a career transition or build on to some of your... A lot of people right don't have the degrees in in exercise science or phys ed, uh, coaching. And so we developed that program. And then just this fall, we're starting two other certificates that are 16 credit specialized certificates in one, again, in strength, conditioning, and fitness. So it's four classes. And then the other one is in the psychology of coaching. Cool. And so... We're looking – I just had a conversation yesterday. We're looking, I think, next maybe year to try to launch another psychology of coaching uh, or a cultural sports psychology uh, certificate, 24-credit certificate program. Okay. And this is builds on what we talked about because a lot of coaches get in with a heavy physical science background and then they realize, wait a minute, I'm dealing with people and organizations – And this stuff is complex and people don't uh, uh, conflict, right? What do we do about conflict? Oh, we just resolve it. It's going to exist. So it's not just resolution. It's also managing on a daily basis. Uh, So anyway, we're going to hopefully do the cultural sports psychology, a lot of work on sociology of coaching, mental skills of athletic performance, the psychology of coaching, reflective practice. Uh, Then my goal would be to develop an undergraduate program. So I'm starting to kind of sketch nice. that out. We don't have one at Denver, yep. and then even a doctoral program as well, cool. uh, and, and focusing more on the social and behavioral aspects, but then also the sports science aspects too. Right. You know, I'd love to continue to be interdisciplinary, yeah. not just in our silos, doing our own research and our own ways, but experimenting and thinking and integrating in practice, and let's see what happens. Yeah. You know, not just uh, one way or the other, but let's look at it truly kind of holistically or to to use the word 360. Let's look at it that way and not just kind of play lip service to it. Let's really try to integrate and experiment and and innovate. That would be actually innovative, not just saying, well, we're all using X device. So we're all innovative. No, no, you're not, not really. (laughs) Uh,
1: so these certificate programs, you'd need a undergraduate degree, but you could also have a master's to to, sure. to take the certificate. Yeah. yeah.
0: Cool. Yeah. I mean, somebody, too, that's got a master's in exercise science or uh, in maybe an MBA or something like that or counseling even, uh, education, but you really want to focus on the coaching aspects of things, yeah, that's where you're going to take a, a a mini or a specialized 16-credit certificate or, you know, come back and add on that 24-credit certificate is that it's it's – by federal regulations too, it's even it's supposed to be a job-ready, streamlined process. Okay. Whereas the master's degree is more comprehensive, yep. has more of a research component to it as well, and that's graduate level standard. Okay. Uh, certificates and graduate certificates are meant to be a little bit more about the here and now and quicker. Cool. You know. Like okay. it. For somebody that's looking for more, like we say, read a book or. People talk about, oh, I'm going to go back and get a, I'll talk to, I'll I know in the exhibit hall today and this week, I'll talk to 10 people that want to get a second master's or maybe a PhD. Right. They're not really sure why. Well, let's let's think about that and really what you need to do and, and why you're going to do it. And does this make sense for you? You know, what's the best way for your for you to invest in your uh, professional development.
1: Yeah, I love it. Talk about deliberate practice. There you go. How about uh, also anybody uh, wants to follow up with you, um, I know you're a savvy social media guy, trying to keep up with me. So, talk about uh, how to how to get you up on social I or need, wherever they can find you. I all
0: Scott's Instagram followers. <laughs> There's too many options on Instagram. I do um, I do the uh, Twitter. I do the Twitter. So it's at Dr. Garrity. D R G E A R I T Y. Uh, Instagram, Twitter. I got. I like a lot of LinkedIn requests. I can edge on that one. I got the Facebook. Nice. I don't have. My kids have TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what TikTok yeah. is.
1: I, put on, I only put energy into Instagram. I can I can only handle one of them. These, that's all I, I got.
0: I need to go to the class. I need to go to, to the glute guys. <laughs> oh, yeah. Brett uh,
1: Contreras. Uh, I can't
0: remember what day it is. I think
1: it's Friday or
0: Saturday. There's Talking a, about... Since we're there, and then we'll end, I don't know when you want to end, but that's an interesting sociological observation to me. Yeah. Is that while we're in the day and age of social media, of Instagram followers... And we got people, I mean, there's, you open it up and, and right away, there's everybody's got an exercise video. Right. And it's just like, wait a minute, like, let's critique this. Let's understand what this is doing, what effect it has. Why are people spending 45 minutes at the gym working on their glutes? Right. <laughs> like, or, or why are they doing a particular exercise that they saw somewhere and you're just scratching your head going, man, you know. We need to be careful. That's why knowledge is dangerous. We have to be careful about what we see from everybody. Yeah, you know, myself included. I tell you know I tell our students too to question everything I'm saying too. Right, knowledge is dangerous. Knowledge is power. Not power. No, not that one. No, (laughs) knowledge is not power. Knowledge is not power. (laughs) Power is a force. It's a way of of mobilizing and moving and influencing and having impact. It is not synonymous with knowledge. (laughs) That's a great point.
1: Good. This has been awesome. Again appreciate you being on the show. We got uh, all your info. Obviously, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And I'm going to definitely be looking forward to the book that you and Dr. Callery are uh, coming out with soon. So thanks again for being on the show. And if you're new to this podcast and want to learn more about NSCA Strength and Conditioning Certifications, you can get all the details at nsca.com slash certification. And again, we want to thank our sponsor, so our next exercise equipment for supporting the podcast and everything we do here at the sca uh look forward to uh again talking with everybody soon if you like this you know please go on the method that you choose to download itunes google place spotify whatever give us a review like subscribe all that good stuff send me a message on instagram whatever it is uh, anyway thanks for listening appreciate everybody